invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. And while you're turning there, we it's so good to have Dave with us tonight, but I'm so sorry that he missed the big the big chapter, the big section on the Hezekiah's tunnel and also the pool of Siloam. But that's okay. He was there. And I don't know if he felt this way, but you know, if you've never been there before and you're going to go in that tunnel um, and you start to go down and it's very dark, unless you have a flashlight or the person in front of you has a flashlight. And, you know, you were committed in the beginning, but now you're not so sure because you're walking and walking and walking. Probably bumped your head a couple of times. Definitely. Definitely. And you're wondering if, Maybe you made a mistake. Well, you usually can't go backwards because there's people behind you. And if you're halfway there, you might as well go halfway out. Well, anyway, as you do go through it all, it's a blessing to go through that. And, of course, it was a blessing to go through this section last week and talk about Hezekiah's tunnel. Well, this week it's entitled... Hezekiah's loyalty and God questioned. What we're going to see, which we have seen it in everyone's life except the Lord Jesus Christ, is that no one is perfect. Of course, we're all sinners, and that's why we needed Christ to die on the cross for us. Hezekiah, one of the great kings in the book of 2 Kings, like David, did right inside of the Lord, but there was a little bit of double-mindedness on Hezekiah. We talked about that last week just a little bit when he did all of these great things, and then he stopped and he started to pay tribute to Sennacherib, to the king of Assyria. Well, now the king of Assyria had sent his officials down to talk to Hezekiah. And he's going to question, rightfully so, Hezekiah's loyalty to him and Hezekiah's loyalty to his God. We're not going to get through with all of it because it goes into chapter 19. Lord willing, we'll conclude chapter 18 today. But uh, it's, it goes on with chapter 19, and I must say it's a good ending. Okay, so But again... Uh, we go back to that, that theme of a, a man or woman, a person who's uh, right in the eyes of the Lord, a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you follow him with all of your heart, and then the, the times that you don't, you turn back to him as quickly as possible and even confess your sins and repent with all sincerity. Well, as we take a look at this we're going to pick it up just far, as far as review goes. And if you remember, we, we got through about, uh, oh, 16 verses last time. And the first thing we saw was Hezekiah's rebellion. Good rebellion. Not rebellion against God, but rebellion against the king of Assyria. Then we talked about Hezekiah's tunnel and why he built that tunnel or dug the tunnel, excavated the tunnel. And then we're going to talk about Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tribute, that he started paying money to Sennacherib to keep him away from attacking them. Well, as we looked at this, as he was rebelling against Assyria, Sennacherib had come down into Judah, the southern kingdom. There is no northern kingdom at this point. And of course, what's in the southern kingdom is Jerusalem, and they're coming closer. So... Hezekiah began to prepare for this battle, and he did so by excavating that tunnel. I'll just read it really quick. A 1,700-foot-long tunnel cut through solid rock, truly, below Jerusalem, redirected water from the spring Gahan outside of Jerusalem toward the south of Jerusalem into the pool of Siloam within the city to provide water in a time of siege. So it did two things. One was it didn't give the enemy water, and two, the enemy could not stop the water from coming into uh, the city because it was underground. 
The tunnel was a remarkable feat of engineering and boring skill. Often 60 feet below the ground and large enough to walk through, it was discovered in 1838, but not until 1909 was it cleared of the debris left by the destruction of Jerusalem back in 586. One other point about that, which we thought was very interesting, the tunnel may have also been made from a, a previous tunnel. There was a tunnel there, not completely all the way through, but there was a tunnel in which water was collected. And this was the tunnel that David and his men climbed up in order to conquer Jabus, which then became Jerusalem. And David loved that place so much that he called it the city of David. But Hezekiah rebuilt walls and towers. He made weapons. He was truly preparing for this battle. But at some point, he vacillated. At some point, he was double-minded, and he decided to give in and pay tribute to Sennacherib, trusting in him rather than the Lord. And as we said, he used uh, monies and, and used some of the uh, materials and some of the minerals and some of the gems from his own treasuries, and also he took the golden doors from within the temple. So that's what Solomon had put in. He had put in golden doors to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. And they took that and gave that to Sennacherib. Well, Sennacherib, as we're going to find out, was not satisfied with that. And he wants to know Hezekiah's allegiance. And that's where we pick it up. But before we go any further, let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. And we truly thank you for Hezekiah's example. He will come out shining as one who follows you. And Father, that's what we want to do. Help us, Lord, not to be double-minded in our walk, in our testimony, in anything in regard to our relationship with you. Father, also, would you show us your mighty hand through these chapters, uh, through the reign of Hezekiah. And Father, may we lift up the Lord Jesus Christ always, even in this text. And we'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you're in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, we're going to be picking it up in verse 17. And we could actually go down to verse 25, uh, but I'm just going to read a verse at a time and then work through it. All right, it says, then, verse 17, chapter 18, 2 Kings, then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem and went. when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the fuller's field. So before we go any further, I have a little quote, Hezekiah's generosity or compromise served only to whet Sennacherib's appetite. Doubtless he reasoned that these could only be a token payment. Surely immense stores of wealth must lie hidden within the fortified walls of Jerusalem. So as these kings, these pagan kings, they were never satisfied. They should never be trusted and here is Hezekiah trusting them by giving them these treasuries, and now here he is for more. And I also think that he has also sent him there to find out where Hezekiah's loyalty was, as well as to speak to the people, to try to convince the people to surrender completely to Sennacherib. Now, a couple of things I want to talk about here as we, we work through it. So the, the individuals that he sent, we don't really have their names. These aren't names. So Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh, they're not names. They are offices. So Tartan meant the supreme field commander. Uh, Rabsaris means the chief officer or senior military officer. And then Rabshakeh means a chief aide. 
And in this case, he becomes the king's, as King Cherub from Assyria, uh, Senate Cherub, he's going to become his spokesman. And this dialogue is very interesting. It's going to end in the end of the chapter, some 20 verses. Now, notice they came to Jerusalem with a large army. Now, it wasn't his total army because some of them were still at, probably more, most of them were still at Lachish. And, but they sent an army, no doubt, to intimidate Hezekiah, put more pressure on him. And it says that they camped um, by the conduit of the upper pool. Well, the problem is we're not exactly sure where the upper pool was. Well, it describes it as the highway of the Fuller's Field, except we don't know with certainty today where the Fuller's Field was. But let's take a look at Jerusalem. I found an interesting map, and hopefully you can see it. So on this map, first thing that I did was I uh, drew the outline where Hezekiah's tunnel was, how he brought the water in. And the reason why it's not straight is because he did use that, that other tunnel that was there, and then he had to carve it all the way to the pool of Salaam. Now, if you do notice, it's broken up between the city of David, what David came to when he first conquer Jerusalem, and then we're going to see Solomon's expansion, and then Hezekiah's expansion, and then somewhere northwest is the upper pool, and where the Fuller's field was, so let's just look at that real quick, so here we have, uh, color, I color-coded it, um, the city of David, so this would have been Jerusalem when he first took it over, and they conquered it. And then Solomon, of course, when he built the temple, he had more of the area. <clears throat> and then we even see that Hezekiah expanded it. It said that he built walls and towers, and he was preparing it for this battle. And so we see his work. And by the way, it also shows the wall during the time of Christ. So I'll just quickly... So it was even expanded more, and this is what Christ would have seen at that time. But anyway, somewhere to the north... I don't know, maybe near the gate of Ephraim or the fish gate, um, somewhere where the fuller's field was. Well, now, what was the fuller's field? <coughs> Excuse me. The fuller's field was the place where they did laundry. And, of course, they needed water, so they got water from the upper pool, wherever that was. So, uh, again, some of these places we're not certain. Maybe they'll find it. Maybe in more excavation goes on, more archaeology. Maybe they'll come up with that and we'll be able to know with certain. But anyway, everyone recognizes that at one time, those things were there. Now, look at verse 18. <coughs> Excuse me. Did everything I could so that I would not cough. I didn't cough all day. All right. <clears throat> so verse 18, instead of Hezekiah coming and meeting with these army officials and the army behind him, he sends his officials. Look at verse 18. When they called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they came out to them. So Hezekiah didn't really come out to them, only these uh, officials. Well, why did the king come out? Well, I think it was a couple of things. I think number one, because that was the normal protocol. I mean, you just wouldn't call out a king to an army and the king would come out. It would be the proper protocol to send the officials and find out what you wanted. But I think it was also the proper protocol for safety too uh, because uh, they're bringing an army and they're going to strong arm them. Um, so what we see is we see these three officials coming out and one of the things that's very interesting is this is the time of Isaiah. Now, we're not going to see Isaiah per se 
this week. But when we get into chapter 19, we're going to see Isaiah. Isaiah will be in 2 Kings. And in chapter 22, and then later on in chapter 32, we're going to see 2 Kings in Isaiah. In fact, almost the same exact words are in Isaiah that are in this section or most of this section. And so we're going to see that. Well, what did they want? What did this, this group want? And of course, uh, Rab Shekah, Rab Shekah, um, he is the one who's going to be the spokesman. Now, that's not his name. That's his title. And look at verse 19. It says, Then Rab Shekah said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? So you can see that he's wanting to find out you rebelled before. You said you were paying tribute. I'm not sure I trust you. So what is this confidence that you felt well enough to rebel against me? Now, I want you to notice something here. When he addresses Hezekiah, he doesn't address Hezekiah as the king. But when he addresses his own king, king of Assyria, he is the great king. So this is kind of a little bit of psychological warfare going on, even back then, lowering Hezekiah, lifting up the great king of Assyria. And of course, they had conquered many nations. They had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel already. So they, they, they are a powerhouse. There's no doubt about it. But the idea was is that he was questioning where is Hezekiah's confidence? Now, we know where Hezekiah's confidence should have been, in the Lord fully and completely. And I just want to say something, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. When there is double-mindedness in our lives, our allegiance to the Lord can be questioned. And I'm not saying that Hezekiah was leaving the Lord. I'm not saying any of that, but when, when he was vacillating back and forth, that is the question. Where is your allegiance to the Lord? Where is your confidence, Hezekiah? And as I said before, some people believe that this was just a ploy by Hezekiah. I don't think so. But we're going to see at the very end in chapter 19 that Hezekiah will stand firm and his confidence will be in the Lord and there will be credit due to the prophet Isaiah. So we'll talk about that when we get to that. Now verse 20 is going to uh, further go in detail. I, I mean, we get the gist of it already, but look at verse 20. He says, you say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? So he's saying to Hezekiah, okay, you, you, obviously you don't go into war without having counselors. Who are your counselors? Obviously you don't go into war without strength and military strength. Who, who's your strength? And of course, the obvious answer to us is the Lord should be his counselor by way of the prophets. And the Lord should be his strength. But it's very interesting. We are left to question at this point. We're left to question that. And then he brings it up against his rebellion. And isn't that interesting? So we even have seen a little bit Hezekiah vacillating in his allegiance to Sennacherib. So Sennacherib is saying, hey, where is your allegiance? Are you going to rebel against me again? Kind of reminds us sometimes of parents, does it not? You know, our parents with us and we do something wrong. And, you know, we think they're questioning us far too much. But they're questioning, are you going to do this again? I certainly hope not. I certainly hope you're not going to do that again. And, uh, you know, I have to share this with my mom. Uh, my mom was... Uh, she was a tough cookie, and um, 
if I had a cavity and the dentist had it, you know, put a filling in that cavity, she literally would go into the, the dentist and say, make it hurt. And then that way he won't eat so much candy next time. So, so you know what, Senate Cherub, Senate Cherub could have had a, an officer by the name of Shirley. That would have worked. Um, but here we have uh, him, him asking him this question. And the, again, we have the principle with vacillating, with double-mindedness, there comes the question of allegiance to any allegiance. Verse 21, he goes on. And here, he's going to talk to him about, is it Egypt? Is Egypt your strength? And we've seen this before. Egypt, they tried to have an alliance with Egypt, and that just didn't work because at this time, Egypt wasn't strong enough. So these, these officials are asking him about this, you know, and they've heard quite a bit. So, you know, in the days when there was no Fox News, there wasn't texts on the phone of a news break. News did spread, and they knew quite a bit what was going on. And so he says in verse 21, Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. So he was suspecting that perhaps he was looking to Egypt, that Hezekiah was looking to Egypt to help. Some of the other kings did. We just saw that recently. But he calls him a crushed reed. So if you're thinking about Israel, you're thinking about maybe the Jordan, and they have the reeds coming out there. And, you know, I suppose if you grab the, uh, a reed and you're goofing around and you whack somebody with it, it would sting. Um, and it could even hold a little bit of weight. But if it was crushed or bruised or bent, it would hold nothing. And that's what he says. It's like a staff that you're leaning against. And if a man does, it's going to pierce him. All that's going to happen is going to bend over, and that part that's where it bends over is going to go through the man's hand or worse. And so this is what he's saying. May I remind you that Isaiah does talk about a reed, a bruised reed, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a reed that is bruised, that was bruised, that you can put your trust in, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, Egypt, no way. No way with this crushed reed. And anyone who trusts in the Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, um, this is what's going to happen. And again, uh, the Assyrians are flexing their muscles, and they've got the muscle. They're flexing their muscles, and they're trying to intimidate Judah so that Judah would surrender and really ultimately surrender to captivity. That's how far Sennacherib wanted to go. Now, verse 22, this is where it starts to get sacrilegious. This is where I believe that Rob Shaka makes his mistake. Look at verse 22 because he's now going to bring the Lord into it. And, and that's something that we've seen in Scripture you just don't want to do. He says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall not worship before this altar or you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now, this is kind of interesting because it's almost a little backwards. Obviously, Sennacherib doesn't know exactly what he's talking about. When he says, you're going to trust in the Lord when you tore down his high places. Well, the Lord never had high places. These high places were not to the Lord. These high places were the false pagans. But Sennacherib, being a pagan, doesn't understand the worship of 
of the one true living God. And there's also the idea here too. I think it's, it's you're going to trust in the Lord to deliver you, number one. Well, if he can't even protect what are supposedly his high places, how is he going to keep me away from you? And then the second thing is, he says, well, Hezekiah, after you destroyed all of these high places, the Lord's high places, which they weren't, then you told Judah, you have to worship in Jerusalem. Well, yes, Hezekiah said that, but it was the Lord who told Israel they had to worship at the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And up until the time of Solomon, it was portable and mobile, and that's where they worshiped. But then it became permanent in Jerusalem, and David wasn't allowed to build it, but Solomon was, and they are, and, and, and all of Israel was to come and worship there. By the way, again, the northern kingdom did not. They were not going to come down to Jerusalem because they had divided, and so they made the golden calves in their area to worship. Well, Judah still had Jerusalem, and Jerusalem still had the temple. And here's Sennacherib, who doesn't understand any of that, but he just thinks, number one, if, if the Lord can't keep you from doing this stuff, well, then how is the Lord going to deliver you in the first place? Or the other side of it could be, um, I don't think the Lord's too happy with you, Hezekiah, because you smashed all of the high places and you told the people they could only worship in Jerusalem. So in other words, he's not going to deliver you from us. So his theology was bad. But the, the application was scary, okay? Everybody knew what the application was, even though he got there the wrong way. And that's what happens with false teaching, except false teaching doesn't get you where you need to be. So if you start out with wrong doctrine, wrong theology, you automatically end up with wrong application. And ultimately, Senate Cherub's application is wrong. The application here is not that Hezekiah should submit to Sennacherib. The application is, the right application is, Hezekiah should submit to the Lord. And already now, we see that this official has, has brought the Lord into it, and he's not done. He's, he's not done by any means. He brought the Lord into it, and he's going to have to pay for it eventually. All right, verse 23. Verse 23 says, Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. Now when you look at the word bargain here, you think, oh, he's trying to be accommodating. He's, no, it's not that kind of an, a bargain. It, this is actually a taunt. This is a taunt. What is the taunt? Well, look, I'll give you 2,000 horses, probably what you thought Egypt was going to give you. The question is, Hezekiah, do you even have 2,000 horsemen who would be able to get on the horses and then fight from the horses and do anything to conquer the Assyrians? So this was indeed a taunt. And he was making fun of the helplessness of Hezekiah. One writes this, Rabshakeh's words are a mere taunt designed to show that the Hebrews were neither trained nor equipped with the necessary components of modern warfare, even if they came from the Assyrians' own stock. And again, I want to remind us again, this is where we get put in the, uh, the prophets and what we enjoyed when Lou was preaching on the minor prophets, how he would interact with the, the book of First and Second Kings. Well, Isaiah is a major prophet, and I'll just have you turn there for a second. Turn there to Isaiah chapter 36. And let me just read beginning in verse 6. 
I'm sorry, verse 8. This is chapter 36. Actually, I'll go back to verse 7. Verse 7 of Isaiah 36. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? That's exactly what it said in the book of Kings. Verse 8. Now therefore come, make a bargain with my master and the king of Assyria. And I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. And you go all the way through this and you see almost verbatim. By the way, that is such a a good thing when you see the corroboration in between books of the Bible. That doesn't mean that one book was written by one person totally separated from everything. It was all together. And it's the Holy Spirit who is the author. And it all combines. And I think that's what you enjoy the more that you study the word of God. The more years you study the word of God, it's just the way that it fits together like a hand in a glove. Just the way the Old Testament fits together with the New Testament when properly understood as we talked about the law this past Sunday. So, This will go in Isaiah all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 22, and it will be the same words that are recorded. So I I, I won't mention that anymore. Well, now let's go back to 2 Kings. And by the way, there are some details given in 2 Chronicles. Remember how last week we spent a lot of time in 2 Chronicles? We're not going to do that this week because most of it is somewhat the same. And so we really don't need to do that because 2 Kings quite literally covers it in detail. But we go back to 2 Kings, chapter 18. And let's finish this thought. Hey, I'll make a deal with you. We'll give you the horses and you could fight against us if you have anybody who can ride on them who you think can defeat us. And then verse 24 says, how then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. What I think is being said here is it's the idea of, you know what? Even if you did have 2,000 horses and 2,000 horsemen, they wouldn't even be able to defend themselves against one of ours, let alone of all that you had from the Egyptians they wouldn't be able to do anything either. So one writes this, from the commander's viewpoint, even 2,000 Judean horsemen were no match for one Assyrian officer. In other words, Judah's army was inferior in both quantity and quality. So I have to say, first of all, I don't like this guy's arguments, but he is good at arguing, all right? And we talked about that on Sunday. So you may have bad arguments. They're not biblical. They're not true. But you're just good at arguing, and you can say almost anything. And by the way, I was talking uh, with, with uh, someone this Sunday, and I said, you know what? The truth is you can make anything fit logically if you start or include one false premise. So once you put that false premise in, you can make anything look logical. And this is what I believe the the cults do and false religions do. This is how they twist scripture. Well, he's kind of like that. um, And I think it's working. I mean, I think he's intimidating the people. I think he's intimidating Hezekiah. Uh, This isn't the end of the story, but he's making some, some very... Uh, arguments, he's very good at arguing, even though his arguments aren't very good, but there is a sense humanly where his arguments are pretty good. Humanly speaking, the Assyrians have been taking over all of these nations. They just took over the northern kingdom. What is the southern kingdom going to do unless you insert the Lord at this point? And then here we come to a very interesting quote. Look at verse 25. 
He says, have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Very interesting. I, I, think, I think, again, we're seeing someone arguing well, but not having good arguments. But before we take a look at this, you do realize that there have been kings that God has raised up to do his will. By the way, I believe he did raise up the Assyrians to take the northern kingdom into captivity. We're going to sadly see he's going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar from Babylonia. He's going to raise him up to defeat and destroy Jerusalem and take Judah into captivity. We're going to even see that Scripture is going to talk about Cyrus the king, whom the Lord chose, even though he was a pagan king, chose to free Israel from captivity and allow them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So, we, number one, we can't deny the sovereignty of the Lord. Uh, where they got the idea that they got the approval, that's another thing. Um, as if the, you know, they asked the Lord and the Lord said, yeah, go ahead. Th that didn't happen. But it may be within the Lord's will for them to go and conquer all these nations, then go and conquer the northern kingdom. And now I believe to approach Judah because we're going to see a different ending than the Assyrians destroying Judah. All right. So he says, do we ha don't we have the Lord's approval? Um, it's, it, then he says, um, and the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So did he really, did they really hear that? Um, or did a prophet really go to them and say that? Well, Isaiah did make a prophecy about the Assyrians, you know, and their, and, and their power. But I don't believe that Isaiah went to them and said, the Lord called you. Uh, for one thing, they're not going to destroy Judah. I know, spoiler alert, but that's all right. They're not going to destroy Judah. And, and secondly, I think this, again, is just the arguing of the arguing of this captain. And, you know, sometimes you, 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 you are talking with someone and talking to them about the Lord, and um, they're, just, they're just not going to give in. I mean, you could give them all of the truth and all of the biblical facts, but they're just not going to give in. And they'll end up saying just about anything, like, well, anything's possible. And at that point, it's, yeah, like, you could be wrong. That's possible. But it's the idea that they will, they will say anything just to not give in. And uh, this, is, this is hubris. And I think what we see here, in my opinion, very well could be what we're seeing is Rob Shakaz hubris, inflated hubris here to do everything he can to intimidate them. Now, that part stops. Now, we're going to go to the next section, which is verses 26 to 32, and... He is going to speak publicly now. Well, I thought he was public. Well, he was, but they're going to ask him. The officials are going to say, look, keep it down. Let, let's speak in a different language. We don't want the people to hear your intimidation. And he's going to say, that's exactly why I came. And he's not going to speak in a different language. He's going to raise his voice, and he is going to speak publicly to put fear in the people so that they turn against Hezekiah or else influence Hezekiah to submit to Sennacherib. And I think at this point, when, when I say the word submit, I think it's very possible we're, we're talking about captivity and exile. He'll make some statements. We'll pick that up in just a moment. Look at verse 26 then in this section. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Shh, 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 
just let this be between us. Well, we know that that's not going to happen. And, and look at how he responds in verse 27. But Rob Shakah said to them, has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? And, and here comes a difficult expression, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you. All right, well, let's deal with the first part. So it's very interesting. So here he says, look, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to speak to the people. They, they need to know. And the point of even that second phrase is they're, they're doomed. They need to know about their doom. And it's interesting. He says, has my master sent me only to speak to your master? Well, they never really got to because Hezekiah didn't come out, followed the protocol. And secondly, these, these uh, officials, of course, they will go tell Hezekiah, but they really didn't want the people to get in a panic about this. But then he says, shouldn't they know they're doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Well, what does that mean? Well, I think what that means is I think that's an expression from them, the Assyrians, to say, you're going to be so poor. You're going to be so devastated. You're going to be so hungry that you will indeed uh, be left to eat upon some of these bodily functions. One writes this, if Assyria waged war against Judah, so great would be the hunger and so scarce the provisions that Jerusalem's citizenry would be reduced to consuming their own bodily issues. The people had a right to hear. That's the point that he's making, even though it's somewhat crude. And of course, again, it's not as if he's trying to watch his language. You know, you, you're out in the workforce and you hear all of these things and expletives. I mean, that's who they are. I, I remember uh, having a part-time job um, years ago when I was in Pennsylvania, and it just started the first day, and I had a guy come up to me. He said, I just, <laughs> I just wanted to say I'm sorry. I went, what? He said, yeah, I'm sorry. He said, I heard you're a pastor. He says, and I just let some expl uh, you know, expletives go every now and then, and I'm just going to apologize ahead of time. Well, I'm, I'm thankful that there was at least that respect, but, um, you know, the idea is you're out in the world, and that's how the world is, and, and I believe at times, if you can just show them that you continue to maintain your testimony, no matter what they're saying, that I think that is a good testimony. Uh, it gets very difficult when they take the Lord's name in vain. That's them is fighting words, and at some, time, at some point, you know, I think it's even fair for us to just say, oh. Do you know him? I know him. He's my Lord and Savior, and he died on the cross for my sins, and he died on the cross for you too, and I'd love to introduce you to him. So anyway, uh, this, this whole idea then about is this intimidation and, and of his words, strong words. And then look at it, what happens with verse 28. Then Rob Shakas stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. So he spoke in the vernacular that everybody could hear. And the people who were on the wall were telling the people who were behind the wall, who were telling the people who were inside the city, and it was just going. That's exactly what happened. He cried out with a loud voice. And, of course, he begins it with, Hear the word of the great king. I don't even call Hezekiah a king, but we serve the great king, and the great king has sent me. And then he's going to start to talk about Hezekiah and Hezekiah's deception and the things that Hezekiah has probably told the people. And he's even going to include the Lord again. Look at verse 29. Thus says the king, the great king, do not let 
Hezekiah, who's not even a king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He's lying to you. For he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. And so he's putting doubt in the people. He's trying to get their allegiance to the great king. And the first thing that he's saying, we hear this in media. Well, if, if media themselves are not lying, then they're saying that the true things that are being said are lies. Anyway, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Well, Hezekiah hasn't been deceiving them. He has been encouraging the people. He has led them to worship the Lord at Jerusalem, at the temple. And we, we've seen a number of things. In fact, you remember there was even a revival going on when some of the people in the northern kingdom, obviously before they were exiled, were coming down to Jerusalem to worship. So he, he is a good king, and he's not deceiving them. But they said, he's telling you that he will be able to deliver you from my hand. And then verse 30, he says, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. I'm telling you now, now you're stepping on holy ground, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he brings the Lord into it. He's downgrading the power of the Lord. What he's going to do is upgrade, first of all, the pagan non-existing gods on the level of Yahweh, bringing Yahweh down to their level. And then he's going to say, and not even those gods were able to stop us. In fact, it's the implication of what? Your God, the God of Israel, the God of the northern kingdom, he wasn't even able to stop us from coming and taking them into captivity. So surrender and it will be well. Again, he, his arguments are not good, but he's good at arguing. In this idea, the Lord will not deliver you. Um, you are going to be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Well, next we have verses 31 and verse 32. And this is going to complete this section. But this is very interesting because he's going to promise the people provisions. So here we have this king who's already money hungry and land hungry and power hungry. And he's going to provide for the people of Judah. But not in Judah. Eventually, he's taking them into exile. Watch what it says. Verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king, the great king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying the Lord will deliver us. And so what we find out here is he's promising them provisions, but ultimately exile. And here's this king who can't be trusted as if that's a good deal. Yeah, let's do that. We could trust him. I don't think so. And then when he says, here's, here's where he comes into the part where he's a, a false teacher. When he says, do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying the Lord will deliver us. One writes this. The king of Assyria would fill the people with abundance if they would promise to surrender to his sovereign control, give tribute to him, be willing to go into a rich and beneficial exile. 
Well, now we move into the third section, and there is a little bit of intensity here. So it's bad enough that he's already included the Lord in this, and now he is going to, in essence, compare Yahweh to the other gods. Look at verse 33, and this is verse 33 to the end of the chapter. He says, has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Name him. Who's big enough to stop us? No one. And again, the implication is not even Yahweh was able to stop us from taking the northern kingdom into captivity. This is the idea of it. So has any one of the gods of the nations done it? And then he starts mentioning the gods of these places, and mostly these are from Samaria. So this is, this is in Israel. Samaria is in the northern kingdom. Remember, that's where the northern kingdom had its capital. He says, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zarephaim, Hena, and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? He is a good arguer, but his arguments are not good. They're not biblical. They're not what's going to happen. And at this point, we see some good come out of this. Verse 36. The people don't answer. It says, but the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was do not answer him. So they're obeying something that the king had said. And of course, the king was saying, look, don't even get involved in this discussion with him. Don't believe what he's going to say. Why? Because his arguments are bad, but he's a good arguer. And there are times that after we teach the truth, give the truth out once or twice, it says do not entertain speaking with them. Now, again, what do you do if you're talking with someone and that person is actually, you think the Lord is actually working on the heart and their questions are legitimate. I don't like to really deal with someone whose questions aren't legitimate. I mean, they're the ones who say, well, if God is sovereign, is he so powerful that he can create a stone that he can't lift? To which I reply, what Augustine said, that hell is reserved for people who ask such questions as that. Well, the people were silent, and they did not answer him, and they listened to Hezekiah. So somewhere along the line, you know, Hezekiah had encouraged them. You remember that? After he prepared all the weapons, and they, they did the tunnel, and after he fortified the wall, he then talks to them and says, be of good courage. And, of course, that's right before he starts to pay them the tribute. But nevertheless, the people are remaining faithful, and that's good. You know, it shows the leadership of Hezekiah. Okay, Hezekiah is vacillating at the moment. But Hezekiah has been a good leader and has taught the people, and the people are standing strong, even though maybe Hezekiah is vacillating a little bit. And then verse 37, concluding this chapter with, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And if you will, go to verse 1 of the next chapter. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself, with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. That's a good place to say to be continued next week. And, and one has now hope. Uh, the idea, you know, of tearing the clothes and the sackcloth, it is the expression of both severe grief and possibly even shame. And of course, the shame here is the things that Rabshakeh was saying about their God. Your God can't deliver us. He was blaspheming against the Lord. And so 
his vacillation, in a sense, Hezekiah's vacillation, has caused this questioning of allegiance. And that's the principle that I want to talk about as far as an application goes, the first application. And that is vacillation can lead to a question of allegiance. It doesn't mean that a person has gone apostate, but we can all struggle a little bit at a time. And it's, we understand struggling, but it is right to come through the struggle as soon as possible or not allow yourself to go through the struggle at all. Hezekiah vacillated by paying tribute to Sennacherib and afterwards his allegiance to God was questioned by this pagan king. Now James talks about the peril of being double-minded. Let's turn to James. James chapter 1, verse 8. And we could go back to verse 6 to get James's context. And what James's context is, he's talking about prayer. But he will say a double-minded man, whether in prayer or anything else, is a man who is unstable in all his ways. So let's pick it up in verse 6. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And by the way, that's, a, that's a, an interesting illustration. Have you ever seen anything on the water being driven by the wind and the waves? It goes practically nowhere. It's not like it makes a beeline. It goes a little bit here, and then it goes a little bit here. It goes a little bit forward, and then it goes a little bit back. That's what a double-minded man is like. For that man, verse 7, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. And again, this is not a name it and claim it. I'm going to name this, and I'm going to have all kinds of faith, and it's going to happen. In fact, they go so far today in that those who hold that doctrine is to demand God, command God to do this. You don't command God or you will commit exactly what Rav Shekah has committed. It goes on in verse 8, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What he's talking about in James is he's saying, look, you have to believe that the Lord will bring about his will, that the Lord is powerful enough to bring about his will, even if the Assyrians are at your upper pool. Even if you're facing trials, trials that obviously appear from man's point of view are too big for us, you have to have that strong faith. Now, you don't know what's going to happen, and there are things that it could end up being God's will. And we know God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, it can be anything that God will work together, but we have to have faith in the Lord that he is going to accomplish his will. You know, I think it came out one of our sermons that we've been watching um, in Ligonier, their conference called Stand Firm, that we look at our day and age and it's, it's possibility to, to fear. In fact, I just saw something on the news yesterday about the uprise, uh, the increase of anxiety. Everybody has anxiety problems. Well, how do you get over anxiety? Romans 8, 28. How do you get over it? Having a strong faith that the Lord will accomplish his will and you also pray and you also obey him. But it's not just for prayer. It's being unstable in all your ways if we're vacillating. And I, I'm not saying it's always easy. And I'm not saying we're always a bulwark of faith. But I do remember the man when Jesus said, do you believe that I, I can do this? The man said, I believe, help my unbelief. And that was enough. That was enough. That was enough, I think, to keep him from double-mindedness. So, that's the idea here of it. So it applies to all areas of life, and this would include double-minded in one's whole devotion and trust in the Lord. That's what the Lord wants ultimately. He wants our complete devotion and our complete trust. And he develops that in us. 
How does he do that? By putting the Assyrians at our wall, by putting us through trials. And we think that when we go through the trial, this is the worst thing in the world. And yet we know God causes all things to work together for good. So he's making us more like Christ through these things. If we want an example, we have one in Joshua, do we not? An example of one who was not double-minded. In the words that we see in many homes, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's no double-mindedness there. That's a great verse, and that applies to all things. And so there, there is this idea here that be careful in vacillation. Be careful in double-mindedness because it can lead to a question of allegiance. Are you really trusting the Lord? The second thing I want to say and the final thing, and I'll just conclude with this, is this idea of trusting in the Lord. We can trust in the Lord because who is our Lord? Well, Isaiah calls him my servant. That is the Lord Yahweh calls Jesus Christ my servant. And what do we know about this servant? Well, he is called a bruised reed. He is called a bruised reed. Turn with me to Isaiah 42. Now, sometimes in the book of Isaiah, the phrase servant or my servant does refer to Israel, but not always. Here, it's very clear that it's talking about a person, and the person is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. Isn't that interesting? That's what Rob Shakah did. Verse 3, a bruised reed. And by the way, that word for bruised is the same exact word that's translated crushed. A bruised reed, he will not break. Egypt, that that bruised reed, they'll break. But Lord Jesus Christ, he will not break. And a dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So in speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, what all does that talk about? Well, First of all, he is the Lord's servant. He will accomplish God's will, which is to die on the cross for our sins so that faith alone and Christ alone will bring forgiveness to all who come to him. Why is he a bruised reed? Because he will be crucified. But he will rise from the dead and he will come back a second time and institute his millennial kingdom. And in that millennial kingdom, it'll be what the earth has always been waiting for, justice, justice restored. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ will do in the millennial kingdom. And all of the other covenants are fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And it is Christ who is going to do it. One writes this, Isaiah looked beyond the first coming of Christ to his second coming. Jesus fulfilled, in verse 1, 2, and 3, the first part of 3, at his first coming and will fulfill, verse 4, at his second coming when he rules the earth in perfect justice with a rod of iron. Can we trust him? Oh, yes, we can. We can absolutely trust him. And I think this is one of the things that helps us from being double-minded. When we look at how trustworthy he is, how faithful he is, how worthy of our trust, our trust becomes stronger, it becomes faithful, and it's anything but double-minded. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the example here in Hezekiah. And Father, we look forward to the good ending in chapter 19. Father, we also pray for a good ending in our own lives, that we continue to walk today and will continue to walk with you strong and not double-minded, not vacillating, but trusting in our bruised reed who died on the cross for our sins and is coming back again. Lord, we pray that we will trust in him, that we will be used by him even until he comes, Lord, or you take us home. Thank you, Father, for these things that we can see in this passage, in the life even of Hezekiah, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.